Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm grateful that we can be here as a, a body of Christ. If you haven't already, please grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Now, we, we come to the end of our sermon series on the greatest sermon, this extended word from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. As with past series like Galatians, James, Job, even Matthew 1 through 4 that we covered earlier this year, it's always difficult to come to the end, especially if it's been rich. And Jesus' words to us from a mountain have been and are life-altering. These words, our belief in them, our confession of them, our clinging to them, it'll, it'll change everything. And I'd like to share a sobering story that speaks to the heart of our passage. The story is a historical one found in the Christian classic uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'll leave this up here if you'd like to come look at it after service. And if you're not familiar, the, the book was first published in the 1500s and has been consistently edited and updated through the centuries, as you may guess by the title. It's a book documenting those who have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't own a copy, I would encourage you to find one because like Hebrews 11, we see the faithfulness of God as he empowers his people to be a faithful cloud of witnesses to the gospel of our Lord. One particular story can be summed up this way. China, 1977. Two girls and their pastor are arrested and sentenced to death for being faithful followers of Christ. The prisoners were mocked for believing in an unseen God. Freedom was sometimes granted to those who would renounce their faith, but this time the pastor would be granted freedom if he did one thing. If he executed the two girls that he was arrested with. The pastor accepts, and the day comes, and he takes the gun. A fellow prisoner watched it all from the other cell. The girls, they bowed to their pastor and audibly spoke to him and thanked him for his teaching of the gospel of Christ and the promises of eternal life, teaching the realities of sinfulness of humanity by the forgiveness that God grants they urged their pastor in that moment to not despair in his sin like Judas did, but to repent like Peter. The girls pointed him to grace in their final moments. He raised the gun and he killed those two girls. Then the guards of that prison took him and shot him. This unsettling story, it shocks us into consideration of our passage in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. And our main idea this morning is simply this. Jesus is the rock who secures us. Stability, courage, faith, resolve, hope in the face of circumstance, life, and even, but especially death, is something that we all desire. 
Whether you are here as a Christian, an atheist, a skeptic, someone considering the claims of Christianity, we all want to know that our feet are on solid ground. We want to know what we believe, what our worldview is based upon, what we rest upon. We want to know if it will last, if it will prove reliable when the worst comes. Jesus, in his great sermon, gives us one final picture to wrestle with as we look at two builders and two homes. Would you read with me, please, starting in Matthew 7, 24? I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. Our Savior says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, this is God's word. And as we consider the stability and the security of Jesus, we'll look at three essential realities in our final illustration here. And the first is this, it is the reality of comparable plans. Now, I've been well served by the late Welsh writer, pastor, theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in this idea of compatibility between the two. Because it's easy to read these verses and immediately stress the differences. We might be quick to point out the different foundations and the different outcomes when the storms come. Dr. Jones makes an argument that the similarity of the two is more striking and at the heart of the teaching of Jesus. So think for a moment. What is comparable between the two? We'll start off with the desire. What is it that they both want? Well, they want a house. They want to build it. In the illustration, we could speculate that these two men, they wanted a place to live by the river a place their family would be safe, a home that would be built to last. Spiritually speaking, they are two men building a life of some kind of religious understanding. These two men, they may have a desire to know God, a desire to see spiritual power in their life, desire to even see real change in their own hearts. But it seems that these two men not only had the same desire, but they, in fact, they built the same home. In verse 25 and 26, the two homes, they're they're spec homes, if you will. Homes that had the same blueprints, the same open living room concept, the same chimney location, and the same two-car garage, and the same 2.5 children, I'm sure. There may be nothing different about the homes at all as you look at them from the front lawn. And if we continue the spiritual interpretation that is laid out before us, this may mean as we look at the life and the home of these two people, it's the same. You might look into that home and see a family peer through the windows, 
not like a creeper, but you look. You look through the window and you see a family. You see maybe even a copy of the Bible on the table. Maybe you see people saying prayers in there. There are papers scattered around the house demonstrating the children are collecting handouts from their Wednesday night programming. From the outside looking in, the homes and their lives are identical. And not only are they the same homes with men who have the same desires, the men and the homes are in the exact same location. One isn't built in Minnesota and the other in Florida. They're in the same spot. Look carefully again at the beginning of verse 25. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. (laughs) That's the first home. But now look at the storm of the second home in verse 27. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. The same conditions, the same elements, the same location. Jesus isn't talking about a different situation, a different context, different elements to wrestle with. They're they're the same. Spiritually speaking, it's been argued that they're in the same religious locale as well. Here's how one pastor put it, quote, they are found in the same sphere. They sit and listen precisely to the same gospel and seem to be doing it with some liking. They are, to all appearance, in exactly the same position, having the same general outlook and interested in the same activities. The foolish man is not outside the church. He's inside it. He likes being connected with the church and may even be an active member of it. But lastly, these guys, they have the same confidence, don't they? They believe they're safe. They believe they've made good decisions. They believe their desires are pure. Their houses are religious. Their locales are grounded in the church. And going back to our passage last week, they both say, Lord, Lord, we've done many things in your name. If you were to ask them about which path they were on, they would argue the right one. They believe the fruit of their life and profession demonstrate it. Which brings us to the most shocking reality of this passage. This passage is not contrasting the atheist and the faithful follower of Christ. It's not a contrast between one walking away from organized religion and one sticking it out. As Dr. Jones and others argue, the comparison is between the Christian and the pseudo-Christian. Two people who look similar in so many ways, but one is on the narrow path as one is on the wide path. One has promised forgiveness, joy, eternity, and the other, as Jesus put it last week, is cut down and burned. This is just as frightening as our prior passage, where not everyone who says and does things in Jesus' name truly know him and follow him. The compatibility of the two men and these two homes show us the continued theme of self-deception in the Sermon on the Mount. So think back to chapter 5. It's the scribes and the Pharisees who were self-deceived because of the external righteousness that they claimed they had. In chapter 6, 
There's a self-deception when we do religious things for the sake of others. And we love the world more than we love God. In chapter 7, we've been deceived when we focus on other people's sins more than our own. And our path, our fruit, our profession, and homes, they can all look the part, can't they? And yet, we could be very far off. Lord, protect us from this kind of self-deception in our own lives. And it just goes to that old adage, you never judge a book by its cover. Take me for example. How easy is it for a pastor to come and sound very spiritual and yet having a heart that's far off from God and a difficulty? I shared last week, there's many pastors who come to faith every year who had been living a self-deceived kind of life. Look how I'm dressed right now. I didn't wear a t-shirt or a sweatshirt this week. Some of you are very excited about what I'm wearing. But you don't know what socks I have on. And if you think I'm kidding, it's, it's Harry Potter and the School of Magic and the Gryffindor sock. If you want to see him, I'll show him to you. So you can't judge a book by its cover. There's stuff going on underneath on these feet. But what a reminder of how it goes both ways. Sometimes we can look at someone who seems to have it all put together, and yet they've been deceived. Their heart is far from God. And then we see someone who we think, I don't know what you think this may look like, but maybe they look a little rough around the edges. And we make assumptions, don't we? These two men looked the part, but had two different realities. And that is the key difference in the illustration of the two men in the homes that Jesus gives. Yes, there is a comparability between the two. There is so much that's the same. But now we look at the divergent paths. So much can be the same between them, but something foundational, perhaps something first unseen, is radically different. The difference is seen in verse 26 and verse 24. So look again at these. One man hears the words of Jesus on this mountain, and he obeys what Jesus' commands are, the commands of a faithful follower. His foundation is a rock. The second man is the one who hears the Sermon on the Mount and perhaps is on a very Sunday in a polite way nodding in agreement with what, much of what he hears, but he doesn't actually follow Jesus' words. This foolish man has a foundation of sand. Now it's clear that there's a divergent path when you contrast the foundations. Now, I don't think it takes an expert home builder to discern the difference between sand and rock. And kids, if you have built a Lego tower on carpet versus the kitchen table, you already have all the science that you need to have to understand this. So we can state the obvious. Jesus says, if you listen and obey his word, you will have stability when the storms of life come and you will be a true kingdom follower on that narrow path. But we have to ask, if these men were so similar, if their homes were identical, if their desires even overlapped, why did they choose a different foundation? Why the divergent paths to home building, or spiritually speaking, why the divergent paths when it comes to Jesus' teaching? There are different foundations because at their core, these religious men have a different posture and a different motivation. As we've stressed, 
you look from a distance at their homes and their families and even their spiritual profession, what they say, and so much is identical. But what is unseen, what is unseen is a man's heart. So staying with the illustration and applying it spiritually as Jesus does, let's ask why a man might choose sand as a foundation over a rock. And Jesus gives us a clue in verse 26. Look again. Jesus says that that man is foolish. That's the discernible difference. That's what led to the choosing of a different foundation. Foolishness, it can manifest itself in several different ways. Perhaps this man was foolishly arrogant and proud. <laughs> sure, he said, sure, 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 sure. Architects may say foundations are critical. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Building plans should be followed and permits are required. But I live in Baxter. I can't afford the building permits. So I'll just do it my own way. And for those of us who live in Brainerd, we just throw it up quick before anyone notices. Don't do that. And so it is spiritually. The proud says, I know this is what Jesus has said, but I prefer a better way. A Jesus-ish kind of way. At least I have some spirituality. I'm doing better than that person right there who just rejects all of it wholesale. I'm good says the spiritually proud. Well, there's also the foolishly stupid. The man in too much in a hurry to listen to specifics and instructions or the wisdom of older ones who've gone before him. The man is so worried about building the house and doing all the right stuff that he picks and chooses what to listen to. He'll carefully consider the slope of his roof and the insulation needed for a cold Minnesota winter, but he hurries past the realities of sinking sand. Doesn't think about the foundation. Spiritually, this is the man who picks and chooses which doctrines he'll believe in. Or he'll emphasize tertiary doctrines or, or get lost in the minutia of rabbit trails and completely miss the foundational ones. The spiritually stupid and the spiritually proud, which I confess is me far too often, we don't have the time to listen to others. After all, they don't look much different than the wise men. Their houses and loca locales are all the same. See, these men, they also diverge more, uh, more of an underlying issue. They, they diverge on their true heart motivation. What would cause one person to build his life on the teachings of Jesus and the other not to? Why would one carefully listen to each command from the Sermon on the Mount and seek to apply it while the other simply picks and chooses? It squarely comes to this. What is my personal posture to the word of God. Do I seek to explain it away? Do I emphasize the commands that I find easy and quietly forget about the ones that are lifelong difficulties for me? Oh, and we're good at that in our circles. We are good at that in our circles. We pick and choose. More importantly, am I putting myself over or under God's word? One pastor posted this way. We should examine ourselves constantly, consistently in light of the word. And if we are not reading it in such a way as to be examined by it, 
we're not reading it correctly. I know many a proud Christian, myself included, who struggles to put every area of life under God's word. Which leads to the divergence of outcomes in our passage in verse 25 and 27. One withstands the storm and the other is blown away. It is the divergence of their hearts that we see in their response to Christ's word. One man looks inward and realizes that he is his own greatest hurdle. As we've read in the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man is poor in spirit, mourning over personal sin, meek in posture, hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that he does not possess in himself. Just as we see in the start of the Beatitudes, this this wise man, it continues, he obeys Jesus' command to love and pray for his enemies, to have integrity with his eyes, his relationships, and his words. The wise man loves God more than self and money. The wise man worries first about being self-deceived and takes care of his own sin, his own fruit, his own path, and his own profession before policing the world around him. The wise man actually does what Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, we have to ask, has God not led us to this point in the sermon where we have to ask, does my life reflect this kind of posture and heart response to Christ and his word? Is that me? And you may be a little tender-hearted, beating yourself up this morning, and I'll confess, reading through this passage this week has been hard. But I have good news for you. If your life is one where you've picked and choose. If you are here this morning and you realize as we've gone through this Sermon on the Mount, you would confess poverty of spirit, inability, dryness, boredom, a foundation that is sand. If that is you this morning, there is good news for you in the gospel of Christ. <laughs> Repent and turn from your foolish ways. Cling to life. Cling to the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ on behalf of sinners. Turn to him, trust in him, and be changed and forgiven and secured, not just for a one-day eternal home, but be secured now in a life that is faithful to him. And, but we do have to consider the divergent outcomes, right? Uh, it's very similar, and they may have different hearts and different paths and different foundations, but we've got to look at the storms. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. You see, our spiritual homes, our souls, our hearts will be beat and tested by a broken world and even our own sinful flesh. So whether we find ourselves in a Chinese prison, as those two girls and pastors did, or we meet cancer, or bankruptcy, or divorce, or our friends abandon us, or we experience failure in school, disappointment in the workplace, the cards of life are dealt, and it feels like a hurricane at times. So I lean on how one catechism put it. What is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, 
to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The outcomes illustrated by the storms are not just in this life. Yes, the scriptures say that as you enjoy God and glorify him, you will have real purpose and delight and security as you live the life that God has given you. Yes and amen. But eternally, the sinking sands of rejecting Jesus result in a great fall, verse 27. Or as Jesus said last week in verse 19, they result in being thrown into a fire called hell. Or verse 13, prior to that, where destruction is the outcome to those who take the wide, easy gate of rejecting Jesus' words. But to those who would cling to him, my friends, if you are here this morning, if you can hear me, to those that would cling to him, he offers stability today and forever. Faithfully following Jesus is the most secure thing in this life and the next that you can build upon and rest upon. There is great joy promised to you if you pursue him and deep regret when we don't. So Lord, help us. But lastly, in conclusion of this great sermon on the mount, we see this eternal reality that's been proclaimed again and again. That Jesus is our true prophet, priest, and king. Look back at 28 and 29. Matthew narrates, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The sermon concludes, the teaching is finished, and the crowds are amazed. Authoritative teaching always has had this effect, and it still does today. Those who know what they're talking about, those who are expert, those who can cut through the noise and just put it how it is, they, like Jesus, will draw a crowd. But even our human attempts on authority and expert teaching has its limitations. And so it was with the scribes and the Pharisees. They were impressive. But clearly they were just men. Brilliant men, no doubt, but flawed men all the same. Jesus sets himself apart in this sermon, this greatest sermon ever spoken. So let's take a step back for a moment at 30,000 feet and look at where we've been in the context of this entire passage and book. What exactly has our scribe Matthew been doing as he documents this gospel in the Sermon on the Mount? What have we been doing since January here at Lakewood? Why has Matthew decided to share what we see here? As Christians, we understand there to be two authors to every passage. The human author, in this case, Matthew, and the divine author, the Spirit of God who moves in the hearts, minds, and the pens of these biblical authors. So what is God getting at in having Matthew share all this Jesus stuff up till now? Well, the Gospel of Matthew, his book to this time, has been an argument. An argument displaying the reality of Jesus as the true prophet, priest, and king. So think back on the portrait of Jesus that we've seen as we've covered chapters 1 through 7. In chapter 1, Jesus, by his very name and genealogy, is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the true royal one who would be even worshipped as an infant. 
Chapter 2, Jesus begins to retrace the steps of Israel, and he too comes out of Egypt as the true son. Chapter 3, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. Israel came out of Egypt and they sinned. Jesus comes out and perfectly obeys the Father, and the Father says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, Jesus, he didn't turn from God as we and Israel has done, but in temptation, his active, perfect obedience prepared him, not just for the ministry that he would have, but also it's the beginning evidence of him being the true priest and the true sacrifice that would bring us to God. Chapters 5 through 7, as the better Moses and the true prophet, Jesus ascends a mountain like, Jesus, or like Moses had done so many years before. And he teaches a crowd a newer and better kingdom way and law for the people of God to follow. Jesus finishes his sermon and we see a fuller picture of the beauty of Christ that Matthew has penned for those who would listen. As we said and we covered in chapters 1 through 4, more thoroughly, Jesus is displayed in his very character and in his very life as the fulfillment of all things on our behalf. He's the better Abraham, the better Israel, the better Moses, the better David. He's come not to diminish or destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He's come and he's even taught now on a mountain as the Savior who brings us into a right relationship with God. Which, which brings us back to the sober reality of what the Sermon on the Mount would have before us this morning. It's what we're forced to do as we read it. We're brought to a decision. People marveled at Jesus because he told a bunch of religious people that their personal, external, self-sufficient plans and self-righteousness, it wasn't enough, he says. He spoke of clear realities of heaven and hell, belief and rejection, sand and the rock. What brings weight, authority, amazement, and even the necessary honest reflection of the God-man speaking on this mountain is the undeniable certainty that while many of us look the part, many of us have similar homes, we go to churches, we say prayers, and we may even nod to some kind of academic belief in the teachings of Scripture. We have to ask, through all of this, what is my true foundation? Where is my ultimate trust and allegiance? Will I put myself under his authoritative teaching or choose my own way? Jesus put it very starkly in John 14 when he says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we are faithful followers of Christ, if we are standing on the rock, if our foundation is sure and we haven't been self-deceived, we will hear these words just as the first crowds did and we will be amazed. And not just amazed, but we will follow them because they are the kind call and command of our King. If that feels impossible, and I hope it does, if the call, high call to the Christian life, the kingdom life, if it feels impossible, if that, kind on, uh, if that kind of call in your life is a heavy weight that sits on your soul and heart, if you need help, 
Well, we look back to where we started in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are the fruit of the gospel shaped in us. Jesus is the rock who secures us. We take our inability and we go to our champion. We go to our Savior Christ. We trust in his work and not our own. We cling to his work and his righteousness on our behalf. And as we've said repeatedly with these hard calls and commands on the Sermon on the Mount, we ask him to shape in us what he calls us to. My wife told me that might have sounded a little funny when I phrased it that way. What he calls us to, he shapes in us. If the Sermon on the Mount is a heavy weight, then go to Christ and his gospel, and he will do it for his glory and for our joy. Would you pray with me that this week, tomorrow's Monday, by the way, so as we go out on a Monday, would you pray that God would help us to have a sure and steady foundation, that we would live our lives, not just on Sunday when we're all prettied up, but when we go out and we have work and relationships and difficulties, when the rain and the wind and the storm comes, would you pray with me that Christ would be our sure foundation, that we would cling to his gospel and that we would joyfully submit and follow his commands on our life. Father, we take this big prayer request and we bring it to you. And we pray the words of Psalm 119. Oh God, I will run after the way of your commands when you enlarge my heart. So God, would you enlarge us this morning? Would you shape in us those beatitude realities? Would you make us more like our Savior? Lord, thank you for the call of self-reflection. Thank you for the difficult call of a decision that we are forced to make every morning. Will I be like the wise man who follows Jesus' words or will I turn aside? Lord, protect us from self-deception, but give us great joy in knowing that you are with us in all our days. We ask not just for forgiveness, we ask for power to believe your promises. And we pray in his name. Amen.